Welcome to the Growth Guide Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Murphy. Every week, I talk to authors, subject matter experts, and millionaire mentors to share the lessons that will help you and me be better, achieve more, and become financially free. Today, it was my pleasure to have a conversation with Jonah Paquette, a clinical psychologist, author, and keynote speaker. Jonah is the author of Awestruck, How Embracing Wonder Can Make You Happier, Healthier, and More Connected. Jonah introduces us to the power of awe and how it can help alleviate struggles in our modern life, including stress, social isolation, and time pressure. It was a really enjoyable conversation for me, and I think that you'll enjoy it and come out of it with a little bit more of an appreciation for those moments of awe in our lives. Enjoy. Jonah, welcome to the Growth Guide Podcast. We are going to dive into your book, Awestruck. And before we do, I'd love if you could start by sharing a little bit about yourself with our listeners so they're up to speed when we jump into your book. Absolutely. So um, great to be here with you. Uh, really honored to be to be on here. So I'm a clinical psychologist by trade. Uh, I'm out here in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, originally from New York, uh, and I keep getting progressively further west, it seems. But yeah, essentially, in a nutshell, my body of work has focused on well-being and sort of I get guess you would say, broadly speaking, applied positive psychology. So the science of well-being, emotional fitness. So ever since graduate school, really, even though we were learning so much about depression, anxiety, trauma, very important topics, I always felt myself gravitated much more towards the other side of the coin, understanding what com- constitutes the good life, what do we know about what works, what doesn't. So I've written uh, four books over the years, uh, including Awestruck, but all of them have that central theme really just around what are the skills, habits, behaviors that each of us can cultivate bit by bit to live a better life from a psychological standpoint? So that's really where my focus has, has been over the years. Uh, so I'm a clinical psychologist, a writer, an author, See, have a small practice, and then besides that, do quite a bit of speaking, writing, and uh, things like this, which is a lot of fun. And those are those are many of my favorite topics, how to live a good life. We could probably talk for days on this, so that this will be an exciting yeah. conversation. Where I thought it would be a good place to start is when when we're talking about the concept of awe, what's the general definition that you would throw at the listeners? And what I'd love to cover in there is is in the book, you talked about this idea of two main conditions that we need to cover, including perceptual vastness, conceptual vastness, transcendence, and accommodation. Those seem to be the tickets to get us into an awe state. Yeah, it's a great question. It's often where I like to start because terms mean different things to different people. I think when it comes to awe, I think for most listeners, we know it when we feel it. We know it when we experience it. And so to some degree, you know, it's it's trying to define an experience that's indefinable to some extent, uh, which I recognize. I think on an informal definition, I think of awe as the moments that give us goosebumps, the moments that make us go wow in life. And I think that's honestly plenty good. But in terms of the research on awe, and that's really been an emerging field, uh, subfield within positive psychology the last few years, they've started to center on two interconnected but distinct elements, like two ingredients that you put the, put them together and you experience awe. 
So the first is we experience or we encounter something that's vast, something that's bigger than us. And you mentioned the two subtypes of that, which would be like perceptual vastness or conceptual vastness. So you can think of like perceptual vastness, perceptions, things I can see, touch, feel, experience. If I look up at the night sky, if I gaze up at, you know, an incredibly tall mountain, that would be examples of, you know, perceptual vastness. But then you have, you know, experiences that don't quite fit that, like watching Michael Jordan play basketball or listening to an incredible piece of music or, you know, gazing up at a, at a beautiful piece of art or watching a child take their first steps. Those are vast, but they're not vast in the way the Grand Canyon is, but they're vast just as, just as much. Um, so that would be more in the idea realm or the experience realm. So that's vastness, either in the literal sense, the physical sense, or more of that idea sense. And then the second piece is this idea of transcendence, or it sometimes will be called accommodation. And what that basically means is there's something about the experience that makes us reevaluate what we thought we knew. It challenges mm. our assumptions. It forces us to grow. It forces us to take in that experience. So the example I always like to give is if you have a beautiful environment near you, like the, the redwoods near me, if I saw those same exact redwoods every day where my office was, right? It's not going to give me that same transcendence quality because I know exactly what I'm going to see. Unfortunately, we'd get used to it. So whether you want to think of that like as an element of surprise to some degree, I think that's one way you can kind of make sense of that. But there's something about that experience that's new, that's fresh, that just pushes us beyond what we thought we knew about ourselves, the world, or others around us. Mm. And on that on that point you made there, it's it's this weekend we're driving back from a basketball tournament. And as we're driving towards downtown, you see in the background beautiful mountains mm -hmm. as far as the eye can see, snow capped. And my wife throws out, Yeah, that's something we really take for granted, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And I said, Yeah, because not only not only can we see those mountains, but those cranes that we see just below them. That's on the ocean of to one of the largest ports in North America. So we have the ocean right there. And then in behind the ocean, we have these mountains that we can be skiing on or snowshoeing. And for a lot of people, they'll come here and say, wow, that's beautiful. It's amazing. Yeah. And for us, well, it's not. That's just our backyard. So it takes away a bit of that awe. Yes. And – I don't want listeners to feel bad about that in any way, because that is just what our mind does, right? We get mm. used to good things. We get used to experiences that we see every day. If you want to think of that as hedonic adaptation, the hedonic treadmill. So just as you get used to those experiences, I have many here, out here in California that um, unfortunately- Exactly, the same yeah. as, as And part of what I wanted to write the book about is some of that's going to happen organically, just sort of living our lives. but. I also think we can learn, we can train ourselves bit by bit to see the wonder that surrounds us every day, but that we don't really realize even as wondrous. We can see how special things yes. are that we see all the time. And so I think even when we talk about awe, it is easy, I recognize, to immediately jump in our mind and even in our conversation to things like that vista, the Grand Canyon, the night sky. But what I always encourage people to think about is look at how many things surround you right in this moment. If you're listening to this podcast, within your field of vision, that would have been absolutely mind-blowing and magical 
to someone even 50 years ago, let alone 500, 5,000, 50,000 years ago. Like we really are surrounded by these miraculous parts of life that we just have blinders on so much of the time. And for that one, you talk about the idea of of really just being present mm-hmm. in the current moment in mindfulness. So when it, you know, we're fast forwarding a little and we'll mm-hmm. jump around and, sure. and and that's great. But how do people use that idea of the present moment in mindfulness mm-hmm. to cultivate that sense of awe in their daily lives? Yeah, it's a great question because you could obviously, and you probably have had a number of guests that focus just on on that piece of the puzzle. And I tend yeah, to think absolutely. of it really as like a, a bi-directional relationship in the sense that the more that we cultivate mindfulness, um, the more that we sort of build that mental muscle to be in the here and now, whether we're doing it in formal ways like meditation or informal ways like taking a, a walk and just noticing our surroundings more – as we start to develop our capacity for that, we are inevitably, in my opinion, going to notice more of these wonders of life that we just so often miss because we're in our head, we're looking down, you know, we're, we're not experiencing life. And simultaneously, the more that we experience awe, what we know from both kind of subjective experience and reports, but also even from some of those, you know, incredible brain studies being done on experiences of awe is it's one of the most centering, kind of grounding and present-focused experiences we have. Like our our Mm. brains are as present as you get. The noise completely tunes out when we experience these moments. So the more that we encounter awe, the more present we are, and also the more present we become, I think the more that we're going to notice the small wonders often that we we miss. And so when we think about awe, one of the things that I loved you talked about was this idea of the overview effect. Mm. which really highlights vastness at, at, at its most for probably most of humanity. Can, can you share with the listeners, what is the overview effect and how have the researchers been trying to hack that overview effect? Yeah. So this is a term that goes back actually to, I believe the seventies, an astronaut by the name of uh, Frank White who coined it. Um, but it really refers to the experience of, you know, the, the kind of experience that you and I and most listeners for now can only dream of. And hopefully that changes in the coming years and we get to experience ourselves. But this sort of account of looking down and seeing our huge planet reduced to the size of a small blue marble, uh, looking at it from outer space. And they called this the overview effect. And it just, what's fascinating about it is you can think of it as like this mega dose of awe. It's like awe on steroids. There's not many experiences that are going to compare to that. Um, But what was really interesting about it is I'm not going to say universally because that's never the case, but so many of these astronauts that described feeling that experience came home forever changed. So like in some ways, what was most interesting, at least to me, was not the experience itself, but what happened afterwards. You know, some of them founded nonprofits, some of them entered lifelong contemplative practices, others kind of gave away their possessions and sort of reoriented their values. So it, it manifested in different ways, but uh, you know, across the board, you saw a lot of these sort of astronauts who had that mega dose of awe, that overview effect, change their life forever. And one of the things that you can, I think, draw a parallel to is even some of the emerging research on certain psychedelic states um, in mm. terms of this just shift of trajectory, this shift of perspective. And you know, you always have to still work on that, right? It's sort of that opens the door of perception, and then you have to keep walking through and continuing. But 
you know, not only have I seen some similarities there, but even if you look at some of what's happening in the brain with our default mode network kind of becoming completely offline, uh, among others, there are some really, I think, unique similarities there between those two states. Mm. And, and so when you think about the states that you're getting into with awe, and you talked about this idea of human evolution. Mm-hmm. And so as humans, most of the emotions we have tend to tie to safety and survival. When you think about awe, though, it's almost the opposite effect, right? Is, mm-hmm. oh, I see this beautiful vista and I stop to stare at it and then I get eaten by the lion because I wasn't moving. <laughs> so so how is it that, that, that awe was an emotion that stayed with us? And, and you talk about social connection, mm-hmm. generosity curiosity and, and researchers saying, hey, we think that awe creates these things, which is why it stayed with our people as we went through survival of the fittest over over the generations. So what is it about these three things and how does awe drive them? Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating because like you said, with many emotions, right? If we think of like universal human emotions that we all experience to various degrees, but wherever you look on the globe, people describe that anger, fear, sadness, and all that. Um, they make sense on a certain level of like, oh, yeah, of course we'd want that. It's going to aid in our survival process. Uh, awe can on the surface feel a little bit out there. But as you say, like one of the really fascinating parts of it is sort of looking at it from the other direction of what do these experiences of awe do to us? How do they change us? How do they change our perceptions? How do they impact us emotionally? And there are a lot of benefits to awe that go beyond this. But, you know, in my book, I do talk about those three, what I call the three C's of awe, letter C, not ocean C, connection, compassion, and, and curiosity. We know that it's it's been described as the ultimate collective emotion, for one thing, by a number of those researchers who've done a lot of that work, that when we experience this emotion, we feel much more part of the broader group, the broader collective. We see ourselves as part of a, you know, a broader human species. Uh, and you see this even with really interesting stuff coming out to this day in terms of like how these moments make people care about, you know, people that they've never met halfway around the world. It, mm-hmm. it creates much more global consciousness, so to speak, is another way to think about that. Uh, but it's very connecting. It also spurs altruism much more than other positive emotional states. So it's not just simply that, oh, it feels good, so I'm going to be more generous, more giving. Seems to be something unique about awe that really seems to you know, open ourselves up to both be more connected. And these are all interrelated, of course, but not only more connected and feel like, oh, I'm at one with the others, but also more generous, more giving, more pro-social. And that's another sort of secondary finding that's really interesting. And then the third is this impact on things like curiosity. Um, which makes sense when we think about it, right? Like if I look up at an incredible sunset or the Milky Way or whatever it might be, or top of a mountain, you know, we sort of feel this in ourselves. We want to know what that's about. We're in an ancient yeah. grove of redwood trees. We want to know like how long have these been here? So I think many of us have felt that experience, that link between awe and curiosity, but that's a third area. And those three, by the way, you could also think of as just benefits because there's incredible benefits to curiosity, to kind, you know, benefits for the giver in terms of kindness as opposed to just the person receiving kindness. There's great research on that, on connection. I would actually say connection is in some way, and, and you know, 
great book that just came out from Robert Waldinger on this in terms of just, you know, the Harvard study looking at 80 plus years of data that social connection really is the most important, arguably the most important factor for well-being across the lifespan. So those are benefits, but they're also, I think, explanations to some degree of like, why did we evolve to have this seemingly strange emotion, reverence and awe in our universal human catalog of emotions, so to speak? Yeah. And and what probably is jumping out to the listener and for sure is to me, Jonah, is you talked earlier about the research and the studying you've done on the good life and positive psychology. And all of a sudden you write a book on awe. And so the the question that jumps out is, why was this the topic you decided to research? Why awe? And and what was it about it that made you think, this is something I've got to put, I I got to chew on, dig into and write a book on? Because anytime you choose to write a book on something, it's something you want to go deep on. So what was it for you that made this the topic? Yeah, great question. And I think with a lot of people, if you're going to write a book, it's good to have it be personally uh, meaningful to you and sort of something that you're not going to be bored bored of after a few months. So certainly that was not the case with me. I I, I think it was a few little factors. Um, one is just this intellectual curiosity on, on the good life, um, as we've said, but also on a personal level, like when I think about moments in life that have, and I write about a number of them in the book too, but like moments that I want to remember when I'm knock on wood, 80 years old, that I look back on life and, you know, those peak experiences of life for me have often had to do a lot with experiences of awe. So I kind of knew that in the back of my mind. And then it was actually like a personal experience being on a trip with my wife, incredible rainstorm that hit us. And we were on a beach. We kind of hustled back to the car. It was torrential. And then we looked up right as we sort of were about to pull away. And it was the most incredible double rainbow we'd ever seen the most idyllic setting. And I just was filled with this immense feeling of awe in that moment. And for me, I had that moment, literally an epiphany on that vacation where I said, I want to find out like as much as I can about this. And I think I figured out what I want to write about. So we hustled back to the sort of little rented place we were staying. I think it was the only 56K wire, like dial up modem left in the world. So I was like spent all night just at a crawl at a snail's pace, learning about everything that had been started to look be looked at with this emotion. And at the time, hadn't no books had been written on it, really. And that has changed, by the way, for listeners. There's actually like two to three, I think, three awesome books on awe, no pun intended, that just came out too. I should probably be touting my own book, Clint, but by mine too. But there are also three really good books, including one by Dr. Keltner, who's done so much of the primary research on awe that just came out, I think, about a month ago. So anyways, Nothing at the time, though. So I that's where my writing project started. But I would say, actually, if I could say one other thing on a personal level, it wasn't until after I'd actually started to write the book that I really felt the, the healing power of awe and moments of awe for me, which was actually more during the pandemic and picking up a pandemic hobby, as, as some of us did. And mine happened to be investing in a pretty high power, heavy duty, lug it around telescope that I would take out nice. to these different dark sky locations. And when you when I would look up amidst all that uncertainty that was in the world at the time and all the loss and the sort of the pain that was happening societally, every, you know, all around, I would just feel it melt away in those moments, like when you're looking at a galaxy that's literally millions of light years away. So that was for me in some ways like 
the application on my in my own experience happened more even post writing the book uh, as I started to get really into that because uh, for me that is as inspiring as you get for listeners it might be something totally different that gives you that feeling but for me that's one of the the big ways yeah and we'll, we'll dive into some of the different ways people can cultivate cultivate awe in their life and in where you did some of of the dark stargazing with the telescope I had been to one of the places you mentioned in the book and had uh, awe-inspiring moments for a different reason. So can't wait to get to that part with you. But before we do, you highlight in the book, there are also some health benefits, evolution aside, Mm -hmm. there are some health benefits we can experience from all. And you highlight five or six in the book and, and three that I thought maybe we could dive into. You talked about awe helps us be happier and more satisfied with life reduces our stress levels and helps us be more humble and reduces self-importance. Yeah. thought those might be three good ones we could tackle together for the listener. Yeah. And that was one of the most eye-opening parts for me in, in learning and writing and, you know, experiencing so much of this was, you know, I, I used to look at these moments of awe as being very memorable, but almost like the cherry on top of a good life Sunday. Um, yeah. nice if you have it, but you know, it's not the most important thing. And I was really, I think it's good to go into a writing project or any, pro- you know, anything with a really open mind and, you know, not have your preconceived notions and see where that, you know, learning takes you. And one of the things that really surprised me, I remember was just learning all about the impact of awe, the, the incredible effects that it has on our mood, even on our body. Like we'll get to later, I'm sure with like inflammation, but even from, you know, yes. from like a mental health standpoint. Incredible shifts when it comes to depression, stress, even PTSD, um, really amazingly. So yeah, whatever we want to get into with that, but I'll just kind of snapshot for the listeners. Um, you know, I think one thing that's really interesting is it not only boosts our mood, which is nice, that's like how we feel in the here and now, but it also shifts our sense of life satisfaction. And sometimes people, oh, those sound the same. But like, if you think about it, how I feel day to day does not always correlate by any stretch with more of the second question, which is when I step back and look at my life as a whole, how do I feel about where things are? Right. And sometimes those go in complete opposite. I might be feeling good because I'm, you know, having a good moment, but feel pretty dissatisfied with the state of my life. Or you might be having a crappy day, but step back and say, you know, but actually I feel good about, you know, relationally, personally, professionally, and, you know, so actually awe seems to impact each of those for different reasons. One is sort of the mood state. It just sort of feels good, as we know from a lot of these moments of awe. But also it's a very, um, it's an experience that lends itself to perspective more than many other what we would think of as like pleasant emotional states. It really, to me, like if you were to put it into words, which is hard to do, it's like this idea of the small stuff that stresses me out a lot of the time doesn't feel so important when we are surrounded by something that's ancient or awesome in that way. And it totally shifts the things that tend to weigh us down a lot of the time on a day-to-day level. So I think that's one big thing that you see. And and so when you talk about the mental health, you talk about the inflammation, it was interesting, this idea that they put people in MRIs, they hook the electrodes up, the heart rate monitors. What are some of the things they find that are happening inside the body that tie to awe when we're experiencing it. Yeah, this is a first off, I hate getting MRIs. So 
if you're a listener, don't volunteer for the next study that they're doing on that in particular. But as you said, they've looked at it from a few different angles, a lot of the, the people doing some of this amazing research. And I think two that jump out to me that I'll just mention, um, one has to do with a lot of those, you know, functional MRI scans where you're essentially, you know, whether it's through a video or a memory, you're, you're encouraging or inviting the participant to think about or to get in touch with an experience of awe. And you're looking at, well, what changes in the brain when they do that? Um, and a couple of the really sort of big shifts that you see just in, in kind of layman's terms, one is the default mode network of our brain, which tends to be really active when we're self-judging, when we're in our own head, uh, ruminating, you know, the way a lot of us tend to a lot of the time. That goes almost completely offline. So we're as, we're as present and centered as as you get, which we know from our own experience. You don't need a brain scan to to tell you on some level, right? Like when you feel, feel this emotion, you are present, you are locked in. Second thing is like part of the, part of the brain called the parietal lobe that sort of helps us feel oriented to the physical world around us, that becomes less active. And a lot of people describe during powerful moments of awe, kind of again, mirroring some of that psychedelic stuff from earlier, this sense of like blurring of those lines between self, other, between me and the world around me. So it's a very like connecting state oftentimes, especially during those powerful moments. There's like those boundaries diminish a, a bit during mm. that. And then you also see things like the release of oxytocin, which is a really like connecting neuropeptide, neurotrans. So, so, you know, the, the love hormone as it's colloquially called, but it's a little more complicated than that. But like what I think is interesting about that personally, by the way, is like that's true even if you experience awe alone, which is wild. It's like, you yeah. could be by yourself looking out at a beautiful vista, listening to an incredible touching piece of music, no one else in sight, but you feel that and you are feeling more connected to others, to the world around you. So those are like three big changes that you see on a brain-based level that are that I think are fascinating. And then just the other piece I would mention, and then, you know, don't want to keep talking your ear off about this, but like it has to do with inflammation in our body, which, you know, we know is like chronic inflammation specifically, like being linked to things like Alzheimer's, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, uh, all you know, host of these physical health issues, but also depression as well, mm -hmm, so mood mm -hmm. disorders too. And we know that negative emotional states, which I know is a little bit of an overgeneralization, we need all of our emotions, by the way, everybody. It's like, don't try to never feel sad, never feel anxious. Like we're, we're wired to have those feelings. But, you know, unpleasant emotional states when they're prolonged for long periods of time, like rumination, anxiety, depression increase these markers of chronic inflammation in our body, but pleasant emotional states uh, decrease those markers of chronic inflammation. But this is where it gets really interesting. In a comparison that was done of seven different positive emotional states, all was linked to the largest reductions of any of those emotions in terms of those markers of inflammation. So it's not just the fact that it's pleasant. Okay. It's something specific to awe more than like gratitude, more than pride, more than sort of the other ones that were studied that seems to especially like help low. And you know, why that is, is honestly a little beyond us at this point. But the fact that it's there, I think is really, you know, means we need to learn much more about that. Because if there's a link there, if feeling these wow moments lowers my inflammatory response, whole host of potential benefits to our body and our health that come with that too. In some of the research you noted, it, it isn't just in the moment, but yep. the power of awe it seems to be long lasting. How did they show that and illustrate that? 
Yeah, I think that's, and thank you for reminding me because that I think is a really important point to highlight is these moments can be very brief, right? We might feel Mm -hmm. a sense of awe, a sense of wonder for all of a few seconds sometimes. But what's really interesting is a lot of the boosts to things like our mood, to our stress level, even in some of the studies that like looked at post-traumatic stress, uh, it wasn't just that people felt better on those kind of index indexes um, later that hour. It was that actually days, even weeks later, for particularly powerful moments of awe, you could still see that like kind of afterglow, that residual effect. Yeah. From, uh, now I don't, you know, I don't mean to say that every moment of awe is going to give us that. Everyone's different. Every experience is different. But there is born out of that research that. You know, some of these moments, even if they're brief, even if they're very fleeting on the surface, actually stick with us in a really powerful way, which I, by the way, had to I had to check myself on that because at first I was like, that seems too good to be true. But like, we don't have any problem believing that, do we, when it comes to like negative experiences in life, like something bad happens to us and it's like, oh, I'm still thinking about it. I'm still impacted by this a week later. No one would look at you like you were losing your mind. But yeah. For some reason, these like very powerful ones were like, oh, no, that seems too good to be true. At least I was, but certainly seems to be the case. Well, let's dive in, Jonah. Let's dive into one of those <laughs> negative ones that sticks with you maybe for the rest of your vacation. <laughs> and so what jumped out at me there, and I'm sorry to bring you back to this one, but you were on a field trip with Kelly uh-huh. and you were on a trail. Mm-hmm. And you came around a corner and, and saw a, a cute mama grizzly bear with a cub. And then uh, I'll let you uh, finish the rest of the story and the impact that it's almost, you almost titled it a negative awe. Yeah. And I had a whole chapter on that. Um, Yeah. And what that did to you for the rest of the trip. So, so what happened, Jonah? And I'm glad you brought this up because, you know, most of the time when we talk about awe, we are talking about those flashbulb moments of life that we want to remember. Yeah. But not all awe. If you think about back to that definition, right? Of like, I'm encountering something that's bigger than me. And it makes me reevaluate what I thought I knew. Like that's actually a pretty neutral definition. You can apply that to things that are good or bad. So negative awe, you know, is actually a, it's the minority of experience of awe that we have, but it is a real thing and it has different effects on us as I'll, I'll speak to. But I'll, my personal experience on that was we were in uh, Glacier National Park. So kind of the n- northern part of the U.S., very beautiful place. Like you said, we were coming around the corner on a trail and it all happened so quickly. I remember we we took a blind curve. We looked up the side of the hill to our left, and we saw like the adorable cubs who were like, you just want to pick them up. They're the cutest things you've ever seen. But then your mind remembers that where there is a cub, there's a mom. And so, sure enough, about fifty feet to the you know to, to the left, we saw the mom, mama grizzly bear. She looked at us. She looked at the cubs. She measured us up. She looked at the cubs, and then she came just charging straight down the hill directly at me and my wife and me. And nobody tells you that they run faster than horses, grizzly bears, which is true. I had no idea. So we were about to collapse to the ground because she was about, you know, 10, 15 feet away at this point. And at the very last second, she just kind of rises up on her hind legs, gives us a big scare, sees that we're not coming after her cubs and goes back up. So it was a bluff charge at the end of the day, but we were completely, you know, terrified and in awe, frankly, of everything from just the ferocity, the protectiveness, the intelligence, right? To sort of do that in that moment and size us up at the last minute. 
the breathtaking beauty of this bear. I mean, there was a lot of, but in the moment, you're just feeling scared. But there was a difference to me between that sort of experience of just being afraid in general, right? Because we could be afraid of all kinds of things versus being afraid in that experience where there is an awe element. So it got me actually really curious about, mm. by the way, the rest of the trip. I did not leave the bear spray out of my hand. I was literally walking around with the finger on the trigger. <laughs> and my wife was convinced I was going to accidentally like hear a twig snap and get her with the bear spray. So that would have been a problem for a number of reasons. Probably yeah. <laughs> wouldn't be having this conversation. But um, but it got me really interested of like negative awe as a real thing. And there's there's been some attention paid to that too. And you know, that doesn't have to be from a bear. You can think of things like um, the Challenger explosion or 9-11 or, you know, any sort of natural disasters or, you know, we have terrible fires yeah, in California and like, there's an awe element of like just the speed of which some of this happens, the, the power, the way that as advanced as we are as human beings, we're still at the mercy of, of so much of this. So there's an awe element. And what's interesting is compared to just like straight negative experiences, the negative all experiences, they don't give us all the benefits that we've talked about. It's like, you're not going to have all these great things happen to your mood and your inflammation per se, but they do tie back to some of those things that I mentioned earlier, especially around connection and compassion. So people really do feel after these, whether it's on an individual or more of a collective experience of these negative all experiences do feel this sense of belonging, the sense of community, the sense of looking after each other far more than if, even if it's just like a negative, painful experience. Um, so there is a, a kind of a connecting quality and a, and a pro-social quality, even to those negative all experiences. The, yeah, even as you, even as you describe the mother bear barreling down the hill, just the imagery and you, and you talk about this and we'll, we'll get to it later, but the imagery that it brings up in your mind, it, it, it's, it's an awe invoking image. And, you know, I'm, as you're telling the story, I'm praying it doesn't end like Leonardo DiCaprio in that movie where the, the grizzly gets a hold of him. I'm glad uh, I didn't watch Re that. Before. Reverend, I believe, uh, yeah, I, I believe. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's just a horribly scarring scene from a movie. A very graphic and, scene, and actually. Very graphic. <laughs> they they definitely did not spare spare the the viewer on that one. And so the what I thought we could do now, because then for the rest of the book, what you do is is you take people through here's different ways that you can cultivate awe in your life and for each chapter you might offer five or six and i thought you know i'd, I'd highlight one that jumped out at me and and then you can go whichever way you want you can go deep into that one or, or highlight a couple that you really enjoy about that area the first one as soon as i saw awe in nature the first thought that jumped to my mind was this idea of forest bathing. And then I flipped to the next page and there it was. And the interesting part is I've never actually done it. Now I, I live in British Columbia. We have beautiful forests. Mm -hmm. I do find that when I was trail running and, or when I was running and then I started to get back onto the trails, there was something about being on the trails in the forest brought me back to childhood, this centeredness with nature. And it was just, there was this love affair with the forest, but I, I keep hearing about forest bathing and I keep hearing about the idea, even while I'm in my mindfulness meditation circles. So part of what I wondered on this one is 
what is forest bathing? Can we bring the listeners up to speed? Yeah. And how does nature invoke so much on us? And, and what are some ways you would throw at people to say, hey, here's how you can use nature to to get in touch with all? Yeah, great question. And, and maybe to contextualize this for the listeners, because I might talk about an example, or we might talk about a particular approach that doesn't resonate for a listener. And you yeah. know, one of my goals in in writing that second part of the book, um, and I run through it's about ten different chapters within that section with about, like you said, about five, six, seven different suggestions, and they're really meant to be like a shopping cart approach for people that something might really resonate for you, give it a try. If something else is not your thing, um, you know, I, I've you know, good good friend that I was just talking to who's just like not a museum person. Last, but like, can I get him to a museum? And instead of fighting him on that, great. Don't take that suggestion because that would, could be a place for some of us to experience awe. But you really want to think about like what what works for you. Um, so yeah, going through these different kind of what I think of them as like pathways to awe, whether it's nature and, and you know others that we'll talk about like gratitude, connection, and others within nature. There's been this really fascinating thing for any listeners that are not as familiar. Stemming out of uh, this this movement, Roku, uh, which translates to forest bathing, and really was meant, it was sort of originated with this recognition that we've become increasingly separate from, increasingly divorced from the natural world. Many of us, um, even those of us living in somewhat close proximity, you know, still spend a lot of our days under a roof, within walls, looking at screens. Um, and so, let alone if you live in you know a large city and you just don't have quite as much access to it. So it was really started from that recognition. And people hear the word forest bathing like, oh, is that like finding a natural spring and going skinny dipping in the forest? That sounds nice too, but it's really more about just being in the forest. It's just connecting mm. to green spaces, really merging things like mindfulness and nature, but in a way that's very. It's not about hiking. It's not about exercise. That's great too. It's not about getting your steps in. It's really just about using your senses to connect fully to that natural space. So really feeling your you know feet beneath you. Take off your shoes if you can. Use ah. your sense of touch and kind of feel the, 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 the trunks of the trees or the grass beneath you. Uh, hear what's there or not, right? Like sometimes the silence of a forest is an incredible sound, right? At first, it sounds like you're not hearing anything, and then you start to notice – 10, 20, 30 different concurrent sounds happening. And you're like, wow, I'm hearing nature. I never hear this. So using those senses to just fully make contact with, close your eyes, uh, open your eyes, kind of mix it up and just connect with that natural world. And it's been shown not just to like feel good in that moment, but forest bathing as a whole actually has like a host of other benefits with things like blood pressure, heart rate variability. So huh. like a lot of benefits that come from just connecting with green spaces. Um, on that note, by the way, before I forget, cool study that just came out looking at doing exercise in nature, because you mentioned running, versus doing the same level of exertion, but in a completely unnatural environment, and showing that actually doing it in a natural space, in a green space, um, so kind of green exercise, so to speak, led to not only greater benefits in terms of like the, you know, the the level of stress in the body and so forth, but actually greater enjoyment. So it's another way to kind of make it more self-reinforcing. Yeah, hundred percent. In in what I explain to people is when you, when you're running on that trail relative to when you're running on the street, 
there's an element of play. There's an element of bringing you back to your childhood. You got to be paying attention to the rocks on the trail and the mud pile uh, puddles and, and jumping over a root. And the other thing that really jumped out at me, Jonah, and maybe it was forest bathing and it, it, it was just such a pleasure with our two young boys mm-hmm. through COVID. Mm-hmm. And this will sound crazy. They're 11 and 14. So let's rewind the clock two, maybe three years. Mm-hmm. So they're 12 and 10 and we're walking on the trail with my wife and, and them and beautiful forest. And they've never been in a forest, mm-hmm. not on a trail. Mm-hmm. And so I, I say to them, well, let's leave the trail. Like, let's just go in the forest you know, my wife, she wants to keep walking on the trail and we say, okay, well, this trail goes in that direction. So we're going to meet you somewhere in that direction and and just take the two of them, get off the trail and just walk through the trees and over creeks and navigate around little ponds. And, Mm. you know, you're moving branches out of your way and they're snapping back at you and, and just the joy of being in the forest, in the dirt And it's to your point, it was so strange to me. And maybe it's my fault as their parents and living in the city. It must have been amazing to see them going through that too. I was just their reactions to that. Wow. Like the reactions to them being in a forest for the first time and just the smiles and the joy. And you're like, well, why don't you pick up a, pick up a stick so that you can guide your way through the water and, and just seeing them pick a stick. And hold it in their hands as they're walking staff, you know, and, mm-hmm. and like a, a bit of a sense of reverence and awe. Absolutely. For the forest, for nature. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it sounds like you did some version of forest bathing without necessarily calling it that. Um, because yeah. think about how present you all were, how connected you were to the land. I mean, these are things that we just spend very little of our lives fully doing in that kind of real way. And even when we do, it's like, we're going to go on a hike. We're going to go on this trail. So to kind of really connect at that deeper level like you did is amazing. And, you know, by the way, seeing awe in others gives us awe, right? So that's another kind of- Oh, uh, there you go. Um, yeah, yeah. So we feel a sense of reverence when we connect with- I'm just showing again what an interpersonal emotion it is. But also on the kid angle, I'm reminded like kids are really good at being awe-inspired. Maybe not- once they reached their teenage years, but like they were a little younger at the time and just seeing, you know, kind of rediscovering in ourselves for listeners, I think the sense of childlike wonder where it's like, we take so much for granted as we get older, we get so jaded, we get so in the routines. That's right. To shake up that system and be like, wow, I'm eating this meal that I've had a hundred times, but like, what an incredible gift. Where did this come from? Let me taste every bit of the flavor. Let me think about sort of how they figured out how to make this. Um, Like I was eating an artichoke recently and I thought to myself, this is going to sound like the silliest example in the world. I was like, who the heck figured out how you could eat an artichoke? (laughs) If you hold one and you're like, that does not – I would have just picked that up and thrown it away if I was a thousand years ago. But to know what to do. So it's like getting curious about that is something we can kind of do and something we might have seen a hundred times in our lives, a thousand times. Can be fresh if we see it through those new eyes. Absolutely, and for the listeners, what are what are one to two of the ways that you love to use nature to connect with uh, to connect with all? Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm I did not 
just for context, grow up as a nature guy. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Um, yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, and it was like when I came out to California. I remember the, for the first time, one of the first places I went, and I I didn't actually actually get to travel that much when I was growing up. I I love to travel now. It's like a huge passion of mine, and unfortunately, I subjected readers to a lot of those stories as well in 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 the book Awestruck. But I remember I came out here for graduate school. And one of the first places I went was. Um, Mirror Woods, which is like this big redwood area in a little north of San Francisco. And I didn't even know trees grew to that size. Um, I'd seen buildings that size, right? But but the idea of like a tree that size and then learning how some of them are 2,000 years old and thinking about what was happening in the world 2,000 years ago when that tree was a little seedling. And I was just from, I was smitten, like from that first experience, I remember I was like, didn't see myself as a nature guy. And I was like, maybe I am. And then my wife is a huge nature person. So she's really like stepped it up and gotten me to the to the next level with camping and with hiking and all of that. But I've really, for me, nature is one of the places that really does this um, for me. And, you know, in addition to things like, you know, like forest bathing, you know, I think it's just Yes, I love to go to national parks. I love to sort of see these natural spaces. But I actually think like in the spirit of what we've talked about, it's it's important to find the beauty kind of like that's around us. So I have a walk in my neighborhood, which is not a national <sighs> park. But just noticing like different colors of subtle changes in the leaves or watching a hummingbird or like in other words, like you could be in a you could be in a city and just you know any semblance of a green space, just getting curious and and kind of feel that sense of connection to that in ways that maybe are more accessible to a lot of us on an everyday level. So yes, there's like the big adventures of life that I think are great to to do, but I think you know finding more ways like in a way that's sustainable for you to connect to just to the natural world in ways big or small. Sunsets if you have access to that. Trees, small parks, animals. I'm a huge animal person, and um, you know, just realizing that we can have relationships with living animals is like an, a, a mind-blowing, awe-inspiring thing when you actually stop to, to think about it. So, yeah, I think if the, what writing the book has done for me, and by the way, listeners, I'm far from perfect on it. I have to remind myself all the time of this stuff, but I think it has reinforced in me this idea that like. So much of life is wondrous. Our very existence is like the biggest miracle that you get. Like the odds of any of us being here is as close to zero as you get without being zero. And yet here we are having this conversation. So I think when we look at life from that lens, so much is magical. Even the thing like breathing is magical. Sight is magical. Having this conversation in real time through a screen. Yeah, like magical. <laughs> electronic components that are pulling us together across it's, the world. It's it's it's, just, it's all mind boggling. You made me think too, because you don't think about some of these things in, until they're spurred. And you know, I live in the city, mm-hmm. but the way they designed this neighborhood, somewhere in the eighties, they sold the laneway, so I would otherwise have a laneway. And one of the two people that bought it for these long single family homes, they planted trees. And so I had these trees that I can sit on my deck in the summer and I can see this 60 plus 70 foot plus tree mm-hmm. in the neighborhood that just like, there's this sense of awe yeah. of, well, I live in the city, 
yet that tree makes me feel like I'm in the burbs, makes me feel like I'm in my childhood and I'm near forest, even though there's not because 20 feet from that, there's a high school and there's a busy street with shops and restaurants. And But that tree makes me think that I'm not in the city. And there's an awe to that. And I thought the, the next one that jumped out at me was when we went to this idea of vastness, Mm. you talked about Sedona and and Mm -hmm. I was in Sedona six or seven years ago or seven or eight years ago on a, on a trip with work. And the guys we were with, we went mountain biking the first day I, I fell off my bike, hit my head. And so I, you know, the next day when they were going back on the bikes, I said, I'm going to take today off. I'm just going to go for a run by myself. And I went out for a run, probably 15 to 20 miles alone. I'm already in awe of that, by the way, 15, 20 mile run. I'm yeah. Into- back then I was a, a, a runner and I was, uh, I was, I, I was doing a bit of a run streak and Whoa. ended up doing some ultras. It was a fun phase. I got to get back to it, but I ended up in those red rocks, right? Mm-hmm. And I had no direction, just out, see where I'm going the heat of Sedona kind of beaming down on you. So I've got the sweat going and just the vastness, like everywhere I looked was just red rock and like massive scale. And and there was something, you know, it's not till you, you think about it when you're reading about it, but it just, it was about significance, right? Like I am so small relative to this vast, rock plane, if you will. And, and, you know, another spot where that came up for me was we were Joshua tree with the family mm-hmm. and we, we did this little hike with the kids and then they were all going to eat. And I said, well, I want to play in these rocks by myself. So mm-hmm. I just started sort of free climbing, which was bad because it was much easier to go up than come down. And that got mm-hmm. scary, but, I but it was that, you know, that same, yeah. Cause that you, you, probably not far from you. Right. And so. Yeah. A little the, south, but, uh, but yeah. Little south, yeah. Little, but yeah. that vastness. Uh, and so what is it about vastness that brings on that awe? What are some of the ways you like, I mean, you have your telescope, yeah. so I know, I know, I know you like to explore the stars. So what is it about Ooh. vastness that does it for us? Yeah. Say oddly enough, I'm, I'm a telescope and a, and an ocean person. I mean, that's, the, that's another place oh. that I just feel completely tiny. I've always sort of been a, a water person in that way. If I, I I love California, Northern California, but I uh, I do fantasize of like being in a warm water place someday as like a yes. ongoing basis. That would be heavenly for me. But yeah, you know, to your point too, like about the red rocks and these places too. There's vastness both in the like it's interesting because it actually combines both the like perceptual and conceptual vastness in a sense that you know there's there's the physical vastness like i'm surrounded just by this infinite red rock but then when you start to wrap your head around how ancient it is yes um, then it's yes. like wow i'm just this like the geologic time piece is impossible to wrap your head around that i get to exist in this moment to be surrounded by this experience i'm a blip so you know to, to that point, I think one of the things vastness really does to us is it makes us feel small, but not in a way that's threatening. And so with awe, there's even this interesting phenomenon that's called the small self effect, which is like when we experience awe, we literally feel smaller. But unlike you know a person who's, say, struggling with depression where they feel I'm, I'm small, I'm insignificant in the world around me, when we experience awe, 
we feel small, yet we feel connected to something bigger. So it doesn't threaten us in that way. It's actually like almost a peaceful feeling for many people where, yes, I feel like a speck in this vast universe. Like if I'm looking at the night sky or looking at the ocean or whatever it is, and yet I get to be a part of it. How incredible. Um, and these vast places, I think, hammer home that reality and that perspective more than almost anything does, especially when you can combine just the scale with that sort of more intellectual knowledge, whether it's how ancient, you know, looking at light that's from millions of light years away or surrounded by red rocks that have been there for billions of years. Um, like this is all just mind blowing when you pause to think about it. And, and so as you say that, what really jumps out is the NASA photos that they released yeah. earlier. Well, I guess last year. And, and I mean, talk about, imagery that gives you that sensation of I am a flea in this universe. But to your point, it's not, it, it's not an overwhelming nor a negative feeling. It's, it's almost freeing. Yeah. I experienced that. I, I, I will say like some listeners, maybe not. I have a good friend that I, when I send him those pictures from the James Webb uh, telescope, he freaks out. He gets existential dread. He says, don't send those to me anymore. <laughs> so it's all individual, but I, I'm totally with you. Like for me, it is this complete perspective shift where if I'm worried about, you know, you name it, did I respond to that email? Did that person, were they disrespectful? Was I rude unintentionally in that situation? You know, stress over money, all these things. Like, by the way, some of these are real stress, but at the same time, compared to just the mere like unlikelihood of existence and us being a part of it, many of the things that we, obsess over and consume over, really lose their importance to some degree um, when we do that. And, and I think one interesting thing that you see with awe is it also helps to orient people towards more meaningful values, right? So it's not like it makes people yes. like just become a deadbeat and like, oh, I just want to look up, you know, it's like, actually, it's it sort of primes us to say, like, I get to be part of this experience for at least a short period of time. How do I want to live my life in a way that's meaningful, right? What What matters to me? At the end of the day, how do I not lose sight of that? And I think all helps remind us of that. And something that, you know, when we think of the the James Webb and we think of small self-effect, is one of the terms that I that I think I've heard that ties to this, is it that idea of cosmic insignificance mm-hmm. that when, when we're seeing this vast, we realize how insignificant we are. And for some people, like we said, it's freeing. It's yeah. like, oh, well, who cares? Like- let yep. go of it. And for other people, it can be just dread because it's, yeah. whoa, mm-hmm. I'm insignificant and I thought I was everything. Yes. Yeah. Mm. If you ever look at like some of the zoom out images of like, here's Earth, and then it sort of backs up and you see our solar system and then you see our galaxy and then you see other, ga- you know, our galaxy in the context of thousands of, gal- I mean, you keep zooming out and you realize like, how much, how many lives have been lost? How many mental energy has been spent? How many, you know, for sort of things that are really, not that important at the end of the day, if we have that sense of, you know, we, we tend to think whatever's right in front of us is the most important thing in the world. But I think perhaps for that reason, that's one of the things that I mentioned earlier, how like experiences of all actually kind of connect us to the larger global community. It makes us more compassionate, not just to the people right around us, but even to people halfway around the world. So there's even been interesting recent studies looking at, which I couldn't put in the book because it's come out more recently, but like People experiencing awe become more concerned about global things that don't affect them so much directly, uh, but affects them halfway around the world. So it makes you like a better 
global citizen in a way, when you see yourself as part of this big interconnected web of life with other humans, with animals, with species, with you know, everything. So I think that's a really, you know, yes, you can go to the insignificance piece, but there's also the kind of empowering piece of like, I am one with everything in a sense, um, both on earth and, and perhaps beyond. All right, we got to go backwards now. We got to go back to to mindfulness because it because it's interesting and you don't you don't get there often when you're meditating because one of the interesting parts I remember I was working with I had a Buddhist teacher for a while. You know, he'd be asking me how I'd be feeling and it was through COVID. So I'd say, "Well, I'm feeling a bit anxious." And so we started to explore that together. And he would say, "Okay, well, f- first of all, you know, let's 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 play with labels. You know, let's not Let's not necessarily label it anxious. Let's let's talk about your feeling the sensation that you label anxious. Okay, great. That's a good point. And let's explore how vast it is. And we're exploring it. And, and then it's, well, let's explore consciousness. Let's think about your awareness. And let's meditate on your awareness. Mm. You know, how vast is it? And I thought about it for a while and I thought, man... Is he throwing one of these Buddhist trick questions at me? And I just said, it, you know, it feels infinite. He said, yeah, there is no limit. And it's, mm. wow. Like wow. my mind can stretch into infinity. There's no boundaries to our awareness. And when you start to think about that, meditate on it, in this little tiny anxious energy in my chest, and he would say, well, how small is that energy relative to your awareness? Mm. And it's like, it's like a flea. Like it's, it's nothing. Wow. It's like, yeah, well, you know, if, if it gets to an eight or a nine or a 10, talk to your doctor. But if, if it's a three or a four, just go through this exercise, mm-hmm. just feel it, feel it in relation to this awareness. And the problem, you, you know, you can get there when, but so often we're meditating and, we're trying to get to that stillness, to that spot where we're one with the universe. Mm. You rarely get there. But when you do, it's like, oh, yeah. how vast not only is the world, but how vast is inside of us. Mm. And that it's like that feeling of awe that makes you want to get back to the mat and to get back to that. That is a beautiful, I, I got goosebumps just listening to that example because that is awesome. And I think, by the way, I think like so much we can learn from this wisdom that's been around for so f- much further than clinical psychology as a field, um, and just how we can relate to the experiences that we all have, right? That you mm. described without medicalizing it, without medicating it, without pathologizing it, and just changing our relationship to those experiences for many of us is such a better route to take. I love that example, that story. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy what you're hearing so far and want me to be able to get your favorite guests on this show, please do me a quick favor. Subscribe to the show and leave me a rating. The 30 seconds of your time will mean a ton to me. The next area that I'd I'd love to get some of your favorite ones on is you talked about mind bending on in in the power uh, of our mind. And as I was reading it, one of the, one of the things I did to exercise it was my dog was on the couch with me. You mentioned stuff like this earlier in the conversation and I just looked over at her 
in this relationship you have with your pet. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, stared into her eyes mm-hmm. and I started talking to her and saying, you know, Hey, daddy loves you and you're a good girl. Yep. And you know, just that, that interaction you have just all of a sudden her tail was just hammering the couch. <laughs> and you could just see like that eye contact, the voice. She was like, yeah, this bond is, I, I'm feeling it too. And just that awe of that relationship and that love you have with your pet, mm-hmm. like that just always blows me away. What, when it comes to using our mind to generate awe, what are some of the fra- favorites that you have, Jonah, yeah. that, that you use? And what are some of the ones that our listeners can be thinking about? And I love that example too, because I'm a big animal person. And like with so many things, we just go through life without really thinking about it. And I think like part of the, th- part of the trick is to really pause and really dissect and really get curious about this experience that we're having every day. Like you having a connection with your dog. You're like, oh, I love my dog. My dog loves me. You don't think about it twice, but it's like, what does that really mean to have yeah. a conscious sort of connection with a sentient animal like this, that there's genuine cross? I mean, that's crazy to think about. And yet many of us who love animals, you know, experience that. So I think, you know, with um, we talk about the two types of awe of, um, or I should say two types of vastness. I think one of the things that we can often do in our mind is really get in touch with that second type of, of vastness, the conceptual vastness. Um, so you can be on the red rocks and be in touch with those red rocks. But I think to sort of then take a step back and think about what are those made of and how did that get created? How long have they been around? And can I even begin to wrap my head around how many zeros that is in terms of like the number of years since? So, you know, almost just taking that curiosity on steroids approach is one way to think about this. But I, I write about a few other prompts in that chapter that have helped me really just get that sense of awe on more of like an internal level. So it's less about going out and finding things that wow me or finding things, but it's more about how am I engaging in the world? What is my approach? What is my mindset? And one of the things I write about is that unlikelihood of existence, right? Like if you really stop and think about, like if we were to calculate out the odds of all of our ancestors living long enough to pass their genes along, the odds that none of them would have died in childbirth, none of them would have died in warfare, none of them would have died of famine, none of them would have died in the Black Death. I mean, all, you know, keep going of all the unlikelihood of every link in the chain getting to this point, the unlikelihood that that particular egg and sperm get together. Right, like we are basically, if you were to play that out, we should not be here. None of us should be here, and yet about a billion of us are, and that's absolutely incredible to think about. Just how unlikely that is. Um, so that's one way that I sort of definitely think about it. The other is that time perspective, right? Like you're in the redwoods and you think about two thousand years. You're in the red rocks and you're thinking a lot more than that. But if we think about just how long Earth has been around. And how long Homo sapiens have been around, you know, as if it was like a long, you know, stretched out ruler. And there's a little spotlight, I borrowed this from, my, I think, Richard Dawkins in the book, but like, you know, that that light is hitting just at a particular moment. Everything before us is dark, everything behind us is dark. And yet we get to exist in this moment right here and right now. What a gift. And really kind of get in touch with that unlikelihood of not just existing period, but existing now. So those are like a couple of the ways that I that I really try to at least remind myself of this this gift, which again is a intention that I said. It's a reminder that I need because there's plenty of days, right, listeners, where I'm like 
not remembering half of this stuff. But I think if I can get, you know, 1% better at remembering it each step along the way, then I'll be on my way. At least yeah, the, I'm 90. Yeah, well, it's like everything. It's like everything. There's so many things that we should do, we could do, yeah. we want to do. We should drink more water. We should wake up at this time. We should meditate. It's yeah. like, well, there's only so much time in a there's day. Only so, so many hours. hours. That's right. If, if we hit these periodically, we're in good shape. And, and yeah. when, you, when you talked about that exercise of contemplating human life and mm. i don't I, I don't know if you'd ever heard they they talk about the one of the concepts in buddhism is there's the four thoughts that turn the mind to buddhism and you have this idea of the preciousness of human life and it's exactly i i, I do the same exercise you do where well my father had to meet my mother mm-hmm. And their parents had to meet each other and their parents. And what if just one of them in that chain never met all the way back to cave people? (laughs) I wouldn't, we wouldn't be here. And so everything that had to happen for you to be here, just the preciousness of that life. And then you immediately go to number two. We won't go into three and four, but number two is impermanence. (laughs) None of, none of what's here will be here your house, your possessions, your family, your wealth, that's all going to be gone. And so just that going back to that cosmic insignificance and the smallness of self, one, the power of being here, two, will all be gone. And when you you look at those two, there's just so much awe in those two alone that it just blows me away. And, And then as you were talking there, I started to have awe at what you were saying, which, which ties to to the next chapter, which is this idea of genius and courage mm-hmm. and, and inspiration and the fact that we can watch the Super Bowl and you can see a pass and you're just, you know, you're all texting each other. Did you guys just see what Patrick Mahomes did or, you know, on a broken yeah. ankle and, and just – just this awe of athletes or, or mm-hmm. Rihanna at the halftime yeah. or, or so, so what is it about this awe of, of genius or athletic prowess that, that brings us all in and, and yeah. how can we use that in our daily lives? Yeah. I will just say as a Buffalo Bills fan, Patrick Mahomes, um, I have conflicted relationships with him, but um, <laughs> but that aside, he is very awe-inspiring. Yeah, actually, you know, it's interesting. Um, around the world, so if you look kind of globally in terms of you know, awe's been studied around, I think, 45, 50 countries at this point uh, that I'm familiar with, uh, actually the number one source of awe around the world that people report on average is actually other people. Uh, in the US, it's nature, but you know, on a more global scale, it's other people, which would be things like, I'm in awe of that person's ability. I'm in awe of that person's courage. I'm in awe of that person's, you know, convictions, their strength, their resilience, you know, and, and we can think of, you know, the people that we read in the news that we learn about in school kind of on, on one end of that spectrum. But I think also just getting in touch with the, the courage and strength of people that we encounter on a much more humble level, like the people fighting battles that no one else knows about. You know, fighting in turn, you know, that, there's an incredible awe that we can feel that has to do with that like moral beauty. Um, John Haidt called it um, elevation, right? As sort of this idea of like, for lack of a better term, like moral awe. Um, so it's like different from the awe that I feel looking up at the mountain, but I'm in awe of that person on some level. It elevates me. It kind of brings me up. 
on that in that way. So, you know, I think what I try to get at in that chapter is there's so many sort of examples through people, through fellow human beings that can inspire us to do better, that can, you know, kind of show us what's possible when people have conviction. And that could be, by the way, like watching a great basketball player, football player do their thing. It could be a great musician. It could be an incredible artist. It could be an actor whose performance just blows our mind. It could be a leader who's, you know, fighting to make the world a better place, um, you know, at, at great at great risk to themselves. Like there's countless examples of this, both in the present and in the past. And I just encourage readers, you know, in, the, in that section of the book to get really curious about that, to think about like, who are the people that we can see the best of humanity in to both boost us in that moment, in, you know, show us what's possible, but also inspire us to, you know, whatever that looks like in our quarter of the world to pursue excellence, to be at our best, to, you know, uh, be the, sort of the best version of ourselves that we can become over time. Mm. And you, you know, you, t- you talk about the idea of goosebumps and, and mm-hmm. there's something that for sure about, when, when you see, whether it's American Idol or, mm-hmm. or just a video online and you see someone sing, and I'm pretty tone deaf, but when I get goosebumps when someone's singing, yeah. I know, wow, that's good. Yeah, and goosebumps often are like a little clue that, oh, this is one of those moments. Um, yeah. In fact, behind cold temperature, awe is the second most common source of goosebumps, oddly enough. Um that, that makes sense uh, of to any, me. Of an experience. But yeah, you know, we know that the hair on the back of our neck stands up. We feel those goosebumps. There's something about that experience that, you know, brings those chills down, you know, our spine in, in a way that very few experiences do. It's like we're witnessing something that's magical that we can't quite put the words to it, but we know it's special. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good way to describe it because otherwise I have no idea why these goosebumps are here, but I know I like that singer. And so the last one I want to talk, talk about and then people can go read all the amazing adventures themselves is this idea uh, of habit Mm. and something that really jumped out at me for this one is I don't know if you've done heart rate variability training is, is one of the things on your, on your journey, but I, it's very fascinating. I I Mm. love it because it's, I almost refer to it as quantitative meditation. Mm. And so for those who are listening you know, this could be pseudoscience, sure, but you you have a device that measures your heart rate and how it varies. And there's this idea that you can get into what they refer to as a state of coherence. Mm-hmm. And now someone will say to me, "Well, Clint, like, how do you how do you know it's right?" And then you're that you're in a state of coherence. And all I can offer Jonah is that when it says you're in coherence, the feeling that you have in that moment, mm-hmm. or moments while you stay in it are extraordinary. You mm-hmm. think to yourself, this is, this is how I want to feel all the it. time. Mm-hmm. And, and so one of the things that you'll do to get to that state of coherence, so you might, for example, do box breathing. Mm-hmm. And then while you're doing it, you may, you, you conjure an image or a memory mm-hmm. that you have that put you into that sense of happiness and, and to make it even better, you try to put yourself back into that memory. So if, so for me, example, my oldest son, he's 14, but this is probably back when he's three years old. And and we're, we're back home where I grew up and I'm teaching him how to ride a bike. 
and he's afraid of hills. Mm-hmm. But he lets me let go of him going down a hill. He trusts me for the first time, and I'm running beside him. I'm I'm training. I'm fit at the time, and he just turns to me, and he has the biggest smile on his face, and it's sunny, and he's screaming like, "Daddy, I'm doing it! I'm doing it!" And he has this like look of love and happiness on his face. The happiest I've ever seen him in his life. Mm. And the way he's yelling that is pure joy. And I just, I bring back that memory and just the awe of that day and that moment. And I'm, I'm able to get back to that sense of awe and that sense of, and that heart rate coherence. Mm -hmm. And so that for me is my, like what's my habit to get me back to awe is Mm. to just bring back that memory. Yeah. And go into it. What are some other ways we can use habits and in our daily lives to conjure that awe back into our life? Well, I think what you said has such an important lesson. I mean, on on many levels, but I think it's a really good point to sort of arrive at because um, I don't think we've we've mentioned it yet. Um, but essentially, you know, we spend a lot of time as humans like looking for the next really good experience. Um, we're kind of constantly on the look at let me let me feel something different, let me experience something new yeah. and and some of these new experiences are great, don't get me wrong, but I think we spend a lot of time in our heads thinking about and replaying and reliving the painful parts of life. Head hits the pillow at night, like what are we often ruminating about? But, you know, we know that for good or bad, when I am really deeply connecting to a memory, thinking about it, feeling it in my body, you know, my nervous system, my brain even is, is responding in really similar ways to when that thing actually happened. We do that, unfortunately, that's like a superpower, but we do it for bad a lot of the time. You know, and, and, and people like Rick Hansen talk a lot about sort of the importance of resting our attention on the good moments, right? And sort of yes. through that process of neuroplasticity getting there. But I think with awe, it's a, it's a very similar thing. It's like, I'll, I'll say one thing I love to do is just you know, it's a balance. You don't want to be like behind your camera 24-7. But finding ways, like when you have these magical experiences, to hold on to them so you can re-experience them 5, 10, 15 times, right? Maybe it's a memento or a souvenir. Maybe it's you take one picture just enough to kind of prompt you. Maybe you got out of your way to talk about the experience with someone else who you shared it with and kind of re-remember it together in that way. Um, years back, I got this like digital photo frame that would just kind of be on my desk and it would cycle through. I got it for like a clearance rack at a a target, but it would cycle through different sort of memories from travels, beautiful moments that I maybe hadn't thought about in two years. And then I would see that picture and it would bring me right back. So prompts or intentions or journaling or just finding the ways that work for you so that these beautiful moments they're great if they happen once, but we actually have some control over finding ways to reconnect, to re-remember, to get back in touch with those moments, even after the fact. And maybe it's not going to hit you as hard as you know seeing it for the first time, but you can actually incorporate that experience and that emotional memory uh, much more into our lives than we often do sometimes. And, and even as you say that, you know, just the idea of reading the book and reading about all. And then as I went through the chapter saying, well, well, what's something that in this area 
sparked awe in me and remembering it and thinking about it and having a conversation with you about it tonight, there's just a, a, my mood or my, you know, go back. We, we talked about our, our, our sense of life. Mm-hmm. There's just, there's a lightness, there's a calmness, there's a happiness yes. that, you know, a long day, it's end of the night for both of us. We're uh-huh. both on the, the Pacific time zone. And, but there's a, there's like an energy and a joy that I'm going to go back in the house in the next couple hours. I'll just be really mm-hmm. light. So there's something beautiful about having those conversations mm-hmm. about awe that, that permeates through us. I feel that as well. You know, long day, six o'clock comes or whatever it was, and we're like, oh, I'm feeling tired. And then you start talking about this, sharing these memories, hearing your stories of these moments, you know, that, that you've had yourself or with your family. And it's like, I feel a little bit of that, just picturing what you're describing and vice versa, just having this at top of mind for both of us yeah. is, you know, it, it shifts everything that's happening in your mind and your body. It's a really, it's a great gift we can have for ourselves to just find more of these wow moments even in small ways, um, whether we're going out and finding them or finding ways to reflect on them a little bit more than we do. I think just to have a bit more of this sense of wonder and amazement in our lives, uh, we'd all be a little bit better off for it. Absolutely. And Jonah, do you have time for the rapid final four questions we throw at everybody? All right, let's do it. So what what has been one of the most life-changing books for you in your life? I would say, what what I would say has probably been the most meaningful book, which now is going to sound like a bad pun, but it's probably Man's Search for Meaning by Victor Frankl. Oh, um, yes, of course. If I can claim it as a mental health psychology book, I think it's much bigger than that. But I would say of all the books in my relative field, that is like the one that I would on, have on a desert island that I try to reread every few years. Well, the and, and I've said it before is you know, a lot of the self-help, the, the work that as we refer to it as that, that I've done in my life has been to specifically to increase the gap between the stimulus and response <laughs> Yes. so that I can be a better father, a better husband and a better human. And in the way he talks about it as where the magic happens yeah. in, in that moment, it's just, uh, even and if it's just that one line. Speaking of all, like to have, that wisdom, having gone through that experience, that always gives me a sense of awe every time I read it. To absolutely emerge from hell yeah. with humanity and and to see the beauty of life is amazing to me. Victor and, and then you know James Stockdale, a bit mm-hmm. a bit of a more stoic mm-hmm. response to being yeah. a prisoner of war, but just yeah. listen, like reading both of them coming out of those two experiences. Yeah. And could live the rest of their life super jaded, and yet they put out the literature that they both did so that we can benefit from it in our lives, in our everyday lives. Just so meaningful. Mind Great choice. Great selection. <laughs> What's on your bookshelf right now? What are you reading right now? What am I reading? So uh, I am actually reading right now an auto, not an auto, but a biography of um, Bo Jackson, the football and baseball player. Oh my like gosh. The last hero. And awe inspiring in in a different way. Yeah, don't know Bo. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I loved his. You know, it was so sad when he got injured. Like yes. he was, he was just larger than life uh, when I was growing up. Yes. That's, yeah. Uh, and I was, and, and, a, and a book came out uh, not long ago that sort of dives into everything from his childhood and his, his origin story, if you will, as like a superhero practically, and then 
Uh, I'm only about a third way through, but very much um, enjoying it at this point. Oh, I, yeah, that sounds amazing. The what is something that Jonah has bought recently for under a thousand dollars that you've thought to yourself, "Wow, I should have bought this earlier." It's really made a big impact on my life. That's a fantastic. Question. These are great questions. I wish I had time to prepare for your rapid fire questions because then I would uh, probably have better answers. For the first thing that came to my mind was a really good bottle of wine that I got in Sonoma Wine Country. Um, nice, nice. That's <laughs> always a good selection. Not, uh, not too, not too long ago. Um, you know, this is going to sound like a very silly answer, but I am talking to you. I don't know. I won't rustle with it too much. But after years of this pandemic, doing a lot more work on the computer with the computer lying on my desk, I finally got a stand for my. Um, computer to rest on that I can look comfortably ahead. And it nice. sounds like a very silly answer for 25 bucks. But considering how my neck was often feeling when I would be kind of looking down versus how it feels when I'm ending the day looking straight ahead like this, I'd probably say that actually. I got that a couple months ago. 20 bucks. And it, it can often be something small. I mean, my wife, she had me, uh, she reinf she in influenced my answer when I was on a podcast and they asked me and it was it was the paper cloth that you buy that you wrap your cheese in. Oh, yeah. And apparently yeah. it makes the cheese last much longer and it's simple to use. So for yep. us, it was our, it was cheesecloth. Awesome. Uh, I might be inspired then, to get some of that myself. Uh, the, the last one for you on that is what's one mindset shift, habit, or behavior change that mm. had the most impact for you in your life? Mm. Will sound, um, I think, a little cliche. Just, but since I write so much about it, I would say when I was in grad school, starting to really learn about the many benefits of grat of gratitude and like kind of really okay. getting into a gratitude practice. I think you know I used to just associate it with oh you know Oprah and, and whatever. You know when I really found myself making that shift from focusing on you know what I don't have, what I wish were different in my life to really this like deep felt sense of let me notice the good around me. Let me notice the beauty. Let me feel, get in touch with the things in my life that I really feel are special, right? Because it's so easy to lose sight of them. I would say for me, that's been one practice that's just been with me ever since. And that I try to really with intention, stay in touch with uh, some days better than others. But that I think mindset creates such abundance in our lives, psychologically, emotionally, and otherwise, um, to notice what's right. Yeah. And it's, you know, you can definitely never sounds cliche to me on that one, because even, even when I talk about, you know, the three areas that I usually talk about psychology, mm -hmm. success, and, and finance be, mm -hmm. being a CFO for the last 20 something years, what jumps out there is people don't realize the power of, of what you just talked about is, the focusing on what you do have versus what you don't have and, and how gratefulness helps you with that. Because when it comes to your money, yeah, it's, you have enough as soon as you realize you have enough. Yes. And, and if you, if you never practice gratitude and you're never grateful for what you already have. So we've gone far and wide on the book. We've gone pretty deep and we've gone wide. What, if anything, have we missed that you want to make sure the listener gets? Hmm. I think we covered great ground on the book. I, I, I think you know, I'll just say it once more because I think it's the take home of the book is um, 
yes, there's the Grand Canyon, the ocean, the incredible red rocks that you described. But my invitation to everyone reading the book, listening, is really just to say, like, what is it today, right now, in this moment, that's actually wondrous, but that we don't think of as wondrous? What can you look out for tomorrow as you go about your routine day that's actually anything but routine, right? Turning on a faucet and having hot water come out is like incredible. Flipping a switch and light comes on is like magic. I, I, I was just giving, I'll, I'll leave you this, a, um, I, I gave a TEDx talk, so I'll plug that about three days ago on awe at uh, this TEDx oh, cinema great. event. Okay. As soon as the video is edited and released and uploaded to the YouTube channel, I will certainly announce it all, all over social media. But one of the other speakers was an actually Apollo 9 astronaut, which was really cool for me to like, holy crap, like that, this guy felt the overview effect. I'm just writing about it. But, you know, as we were talking, we had this moment of like, we all have smartphones in our pocket that have more computing power than what it took to launch that Apollo mission. Scary. Both gives you a sense of awe for these phones. It's a little scary too, but it's also like, how do they manage to do that? That's wild. Um, that's awe, right? In terms of their ability to do that. So, you know, we have these magical moments all around us, these parts of life that we don't always see that I think if we all leave here, just noticing a little bit more of that magic, we'll be on the right track. Awesome. And Jonah, where can our listeners find you? Uh, well, you can go to my website, which is just full name, jonahpaquette.com. If you want to read more about me or my books or kind of the work that I do, the, the speaking that I do. My, my most recent book was actually called Happily Even After, which focuses on resilience, awestruck just before that. So those are two, two books of mine. And then of course you can find me on social media at, uh, Jonah Peckett's ID on Instagram and Dr. Peckett on Twitter and, uh, and on LinkedIn. For those of you on LinkedIn, um, you can just look for my name and I'd love to connect with people and kind of hear about your experience of this conversation or just connect with interesting people that are experiencing awe and you know, all, all that comes with it out in their lives. So find me any of those places for sure. Awesome. We will have all of that in the show notes. And so awesome. people will find that on our website. And thank you for joining me today. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me. This has been an honor. If you like the podcast, you'll love our new newsletter, The Growth Guide. Every Thursday, straight to your inbox with the goal to help you be better, achieve more, and become financially free. Check it out at our website, thegrowth.guide. Subscribe and learn more.